Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Everything Compliance, Episode 22, the new FCPA Enforcement Edition. And this special part one of a two-part series, the Top Compliance Roundtable Podcast is back with a review of the new Justice Department's FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. In this episode, we have Mike Bolkoff and Matt Kelly. Next week in episode 23, in this part two of our two-part series, we'll have remarks from Jonathan Armstrong and Jay Rosen. Today, Mike Volkoff sets the stage on this new DOJ policy going forward, considering what this means from the DOJ slash prosecutorial perspective. We ask why should the DOJ start with a presumption of, of a declination when there is arguably a criminal violation? What does this new policy mean for SEC enforcement? And does <clears throat> what, if any, extent do any of the concepts we see in the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy go as far back as the Yates memo? Matt Kelly considers how the Justice Department might prosecute a case where the company does not meet all of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy criteria and how asks how vigorously <coughs> prosecutors will evaluate a, cor- a company's compliance program as part of its investigation. Matt explores the question of whether this policy is something new or more in the line of a continuation or clarification of previously existing DOJ policy. Finally, He explores the question of whether this policy creates a real incentive for companies to self-disclose or not, and does it create a true partnership between the Department of Justice and U.S. businesses to fight bribery and corruption. The gang is back with rants, which followed these discussions. This is a fascinating exploration of probably the top FCPA story of 2017, the new Department of Justice FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and we are back for another episode of Everything Compliance with four of the top commentators in compliance. We have Mike Volkoff, CEO of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong from Quartery Compliance in London, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, with Affiliated Monitors. Today, we're going to take an extended look at the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. We're going to slice it, dice it, and dissect it. Everybody's been uh, reading about it, thinking about it, and these four commentators have been writing about it. So I thought it would be a great time for us all to get together to talk about what is probably the most significant FCPA uh, issue in 2017. So with that, we're going to start with uh, Mike Volkoff. Mike, if you could set the stage, what is this new policy? Uh, Take a look at it from the perspective of a former prosecutor, and then uh, where you might be able to take us. All right. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Uh, Well, look, this uh, new policy, the corporate enforcement policy, is a significant uh, step by the uh, Justice Department. Probably the first thing to talk about is the fact that it's we're not going to have a memo under the name of the Deputy Attorney General. Uh, we're not going to have a Rosenstein memo because this was uh, administered in a different way, which was to just directly 
um, alter or make uh, amendments to the U.S. Attorney's Manual, which guides every federal prosecution uh, conducted in the country. So uh, Rod Rosenstein took his ego, put it to the side, and just uh, put in place what I think is a very important uh, development in terms of the policy. It builds largely on the FCPA pilot project, which was accomplished in or announced in April of 2016. Um, and I want to just go through what I think are the three most important parts of it. I'm not going to go through the remediation part, but more or less the credit and how it works. Um, if a company now uh, voluntarily self-discloses FCPA misconduct and fully cooperates and remediates, satisfying all three prongs, there will be what is called a presumption. And this is the important part, a presumption that the company will receive a declination unless there are aggravating circumstances. And the aggravating circumstances relate to the seriousness of the offense or the nature of the offender. Some samples of what that might include would be if senior management is involved in the misconduct, if there was a significant benefit or profit to the company from the misconduct, if it's pervasive, the misconduct within the company, and if the company is a recidivist, a criminal recidivist. So let's start first. The FCPA pilot project, the best benefit you could get, at least that was guaranteed, was up to a 50% reduction from the bottom of the sentencing guideline range, the applicable sentencing guideline range. Now, the fact that you're giving a presumption of a declination to a company is significant. FCPA lawyers and practitioners like myself, having the ability to argue to the government to say, look guys, we're entitled to a declination here. And uh, you've already said what the policy is, we've complied with the policy, and it at least gives you a leg up when seeking uh, a declination. Now, another point about the declination is it's not a scot-free, no-cost declination. There still is disgorgement, restitution, or uh, you know, a uh, asset forfeiture type of um, remedy as well. So it's not declination and zero. It's declination and disgorgement is what I call it. Now, the second part to this is, and this is actually, I think the second part is very interesting in the sense that if you, let's say, can't get the declination, you are guaranteed, even let's say there's the presence of aggravating circumstances, you are guaranteed uh, a 50% reduction off of the low end of the U.S. sentencing guidelines except in the case of a criminal recidivist, and you generally will not require appointment of a monitor if a company has implemented an effective compliance program. In other words, satisfied the remediation aspect. And to me, that is a really significant, uh, so basically development, because if you're in a situation where you're really close to the line on getting a dis uh, going voluntarily and disclosing to the government, First, you're going to go for the big apple, which is the declination. But even if you don't get it, you will probably avoid a monitor if you do do it, and you're guaranteed a 50%, not up to 50%, but you're guaranteed a 50% reduction. 
So that, to me, uh, is very significant. I think, in general, um, that this is going to have an impact. I wouldn't say it's going to be a significant impact, but it's definitely we're going to see more voluntary uh, disclosures. And I think um, the fact that the, the government is almost saying, here's what we're almost guaranteeing you, if you do do it, that there's a real strong incentive uh, to go in and uh, take advantage of this. Now, and the last sort of scenario I will run is uh, how do you balance this versus, and I'd be interested to hear everyone's opinion on this, but how do you balance this versus the non-disclosure strategy? Non-disclosure, uh, and I've always said that companies have to be careful because once you cross the threshold into the Justice Department, you've lost control. You've given up control. Prosecutors tell you what you did, which was wrong. They tell you how much you're going to have to pay, and they basically, your company is under their thumb. So now, the question is, let's assume you go the non-disclosure route and you uh, remediate your program, you fire the people involved, you document everything that you've done, but you don't do the one last piece, which is to disclose to the government. And you just hope and pray that nobody ever learns about it. Even in those circumstances where somehow the government finds out oh, from a whistleblower, disgruntled employee, you can walk into the government at that point once the investigation starts and you can still get a 25% reduction under this uh, program for full cooperation and timely and appropriate uh, remediation. So those are that's sort of the high-level thoughts. Um, I'd be curious to see what people think, um, but I think this is a pretty significant development. So, Mike, I've got a couple of questions I, I'd like to just uh, jump in right off because uh, you, uh, as part of your background, you've worked with the um, Antitrust Division, and certainly they have a voluntary disclosure program that uh, was really a, a leader at the Department of Justice. Do you see uh, that uh, DOJ Antitrust Division program as e either a forerunner or something that the Department of Justice has built on going forward into the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy? Well, first off, the leniency program set up by the Antitrust Division in the 1990s has been an amazing success uh, and implemented by many other countries in follow-on. Under that program, the first company in who tells on the other cartel members uh, gets a free pass, gets immunity, basically, and all the officers, directors, and employees who are involved uh, usually get a free pass as well. The point is they, they don't end up paying anything. There's no disgorgement for, let's say, ill-gotten profits from your cartel activity. But keep in mind the difference here versus the FCPA. You're, whole, you're handing out a big golden ring to them, uh, to the first company that comes in, but you're basically going to pound the other cartel members. And there was more than one company that's involved. And so the, the sort of trade-off the department says is, okay, we'll give somebody a free pass, but we're going to go after the other two. Here, you can't necessarily apply that same logic to an FCPA violation that's usually contained within one company. The thing that will occur, 
uh, here as a result of this is I believe because you'll have more voluntary disclosures, they're going to pick on the employees, the individuals. They're going to prosecute, just like we've seen this year already, uh, we're going to see more individuals prosecuted. Um, and the, so I think the principle of leniency and encouraging companies to come in and giving deals to companies started with Stanley Sporkin years and years ago. But I think that basically FCPA has come to, FCPA enforcers have basically come to the same point of saying, you know what, we're going to cut a deal to get the company in here to cooperate and find out about this. And I suspect you're going to see more individuals prosecuted. Uh, the average in antitrust cases is three individuals for every corporation that uh, gets caught in a cartel. And if we get to that in the FCPA, FCPA area, I can tell you when training companies or training people, speaking to companies, when people go to jail, it has a significant impact on, uh, in terms of a deterrence. So before I uh, completely uh, take over questions uh, with Mike, uh, Matt, uh, Jay, do you guys have any questions for Mike? Well, uh, yeah, I, so I have one or two thoughts there. And Mike, you kind of touched on it uh, when you were talking about what I am calling the incentive gap between could you not disclose and then you get found out anyways, but you've remediated and you'll cooperate once the Justice Department comes knocking. Like, how much credit and relief would you get for the second two prongs versus how much credit and relief would you get for all three, including self-disclosure? Because I get it that Rod Rosenstein wants to encourage self-disclosure, um, but, you know, for example, if, and I'm oversimplifying here, but if you got... 90% of the relief you'd get anyways with not disclosing, well, suddenly there's a big incentive. Maybe I should just keep my mouth shut and hope for the best. But if you're only going to get 10% of the relief and benefit, well, then I better confess now before some whistleblower rats me out. And that's the dynamic that I think is going to be important over time. Um, because if there is no incentive to self-disclose, I, I could see a whole lot of companies telling compliance officers to mind your place and just sit down and shut up. And, you know, they, they, it's not going to sit well, and it would be a change. Now, I should be clear. I think this policy is a good idea. I think Rod Rosenstein is a very serious and thoughtful person about this. My fear is that over time, serious and thoughtful people are going to be at a premium in this Trump administration. And what happens with this idea with the next deputy attorney general who might have very different ideas and suddenly try to keep the spirit of this or the structure of it, but change the calculus to really give companies less incentive to come forward, which is going to be a good thing, and we should be encouraging it. Um, I know, Mike, you talked a little bit about it on getting a 25% discount on penalty versus 50%. But I, I really want to see how is this going to work in practice to make sure that we have a strong incentive to self-disclose over time, especially if we wind up with different leadership at the Justice Department, which will come eventually, who might have a more, what I will call, Trumpian view of prosecuting corporate misconduct. And, um, you know, I could see this being mishandled by other people with a less serious and thoughtful attitude about trying to keep companies on the right side of the law. That, that's where my hand to head is, yeah. by the way. 
Yeah. I, well, let me make two points. One, the first is, um, if you go the non-disclosure route, uh, you can get up to eight, and I, I said 25%, but it's up to a 25%. But I think for most of the time, people are getting you know, 25% as sort of a minimum. Uh, and that means you cooperate, fully cooperated and remediated your program. And obviously, the government found out about it somehow, and they come knocking at your door. I agree with you that uh, you know, the difference between a declination and discouragement and 25% and discouragement may not be sufficient to push uh, companies to do that, to, you know, to encourage them to do that. Um, I will, just a backstory, uh, you know, uh, in terms of what happened in the Obama administration, when the pilot project was being considered, the staff all the way up to the deputy attorney general's office wanted to put in place this project, this proposal. They wanted a declination. Uh, they wanted to give you a declination if you cooperated with all three of the prongs. Um, and uh, that was rejected by none other than deputy attorney general Sally Yates, who said, no, I want to just give them up to 50%. Um, and so... I have a feeling that this will this will be at least for the declination part that that's going to stick no matter what the politics. But I agree with you that um, you know what happens with the twenty five percent or what happens with the fifty percent uh, and how that is actually administered and will we never see a monitor again, even though there are situations that cry out for it. That's always going to be subject to political wins. And you're right to be concerned. I mean, look, Rod Rosenstein, who I know personally is a, and I know he got off to a bad start and he feels very burned by what happened in the beginning, but he is a person of a lot of integrity. That's not, there's no guarantee that he'll be there, you know, a couple years from now, you know, assuming the Trump administration is still in power. So you raise really good points, and th these are policies that always get subject to political wins, and, and we have to be concerned about that and, and to see how it's administered. Yeah. I mean, does that mean that when advising a client, we have to now take into account there's a risk factor as to who's going to be administering this, you know, by the time we get in there and get our resolution? Um, and I, I would say that's a very valid question for someone to ask. It is a cynical question. Right. But... General counsels are paid to be cynical people, and it's going to be fair for them to ask that. Yeah, and and you're right. I mean, who knows what will happen uh, uh, down the road? But the, you know, I but I don't know how much further we can go in terms of creating an incentive without just you know ripping up the the law in a sense. You know, you can't guarantee a mm -hmm. declination. I frankly think the idea of having aggravating circumstances is a, is a great idea. Siemens. Daimler, Telia, all of these companies that have had what I call pervasive systematic or systemic problems shouldn't get a declination. They should still have to pay. Even if they cooperate out the wazoo, do a great job of remediation, the most they should get is 50%, in my view. So I like the fact that, that we're going to exclude the really bad actors. I get it. If you had a problem in one country and you found out about it, do everything that needs to be done. Okay, I get it. You can get a declination. But I sure as heck, in the, if I were in the Justice Department, would never give these uh, Vimplecoms 
a, a declination. I just think that would be a, 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 ter- a terrible result with this policy. And you're right. What if that, what if that comes about with a, a new change? Rod Rosenstein isn't there. What will happen then? What's the message that's sent? You can, you know, engage in bribery and uh, systemically th- and make it a part of your corporate culture and then just go in and uh, get a declination. Fix it up and then get a declination, but make millions and millions of dollars along the way. I, so that's a my very other, good point. My other question would be how we put this in practice, especially around cooperation, like in doing investigations, what will be defined as good faith investigation, um, especially if we are prosecuting more individuals, eventually the individuals will figure that out. And I have, I'm not going to name company names here, but it seems to me that I've seen cases clearly where a company announces we have an FCPA probe and by the way, our CFO just resigned. Well, okay, let's put two and two together. Um, But if the quality of cooperation is, we know it was the CFO, here's his email cache, and he quit. So we're done, right? And if there were prosecutors who'd say, yeah, that passes, and here's your 50% discount, like that's also going to send a terrible message. Rod Rosenstein approach, but I could foresee if Rod Rosenstein moves on at some point, the president is not going to look for another serious, thoughtful person to give the president frank counsel. I think this president's going to say, wow, man, I learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that again. Let me get another yes man in here, too. And then, you know, where are we with these? Uh, that, that's going to be a, a prolonged concern of mine. Yeah, and I don't know how long Rod Rosenstein, if you watched his hearing yesterday, is can survive because he, he's getting beaten up right and left. And... Uh, you know, he can't make either side happy right now. So, you know, these are all important questions. I mean, let's keep our fingers crossed that the Justice Department can, you know, maintain its stability, uh, at least to get, you know, to keep the ship righted. That's um, the last thing we need is another uh, Watergate, Kleindienst, Attorney General pleading guilty. So... So, Mike, let me pick up on a point that you touched on and Matt raised, which is to the extent to any, um, or what extent, if any, do the concepts that you see in the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy really stem from the Yates memo, or can you draw any sort of straight line from the Yates memo up into what we saw the department release a couple of weeks ago? Well, the Yates memo is clearly uh, implicated here and incorporated here in the nature of cooperation. Um, the, there are a couple things that I, you obviously have to provide uh, an analysis of culpable individuals. Uh, the cooperation prong includes, we don't want a narrative of what occurred. We want to know what are the sources, the specific sources of evidence so that they can now evaluate how much evidence do we have against a particular individual and who we can charge. Um, you know, the sad part to me is, yeah, we're seeing individuals being picked up in cases. This should have occurred years ago. Um, should have occurred, and I've gotten in trouble by saying it, but I will always say it. There are people from Avon that should have gone to jail. Um, and uh, the fact is that uh, the Yates memo, I think, permeates this because I think it's part of the incentive structure and the reason that they took the um, sort of uh, declination route is they still have people to prosecute. And 
I think there will be more, a little bit more pressure, not a lot, but there still already is, but a little bit more pressure for companies that are getting a declination to serve up pretty good cases on individuals. And because they want to be able to say, well, hey, we gave a declination to this company, but we're prosecuting their former CEO, their former C- CFO, and uh, all of these people. So somebody's got to pay a price in that sense. So, Matt Kelly, if we could turn to you. You have spent uh, the last several months writing, thinking, and talking about speeches from Rod Rosenstein. So I wanted to, um, and you've asked the question, I think, several times, is he really saying something new or different? And I guess I would use that as an introduction to ask you, uh, is this policy, the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, something new, or is it more in the line of a continuation clarification do you see this new policy as creating a real incentive or not for companies to self-disclose? And then one of the things that Rod Rosenstein talked about in his speech announcing this policy was the creation of a true partnership between the Department of Justice and American corporate business to fight bribery and corruption. Do you see any or all of these, or is this not anything new? Well, I mean, it's... I would call it the natural evolution of where we have been going for quite some time. Um, throughout 2017, I've been thinking that you know it was no surprise the pilot program would be continued, and it wasn't going to be a surprise that we would see something like this. Did we know exactly what the contours of it would be? No. Um, but I had thought that, really, if you do take the, the generally more corporate-friendly attitude of the Trump administration. And in the Trump inner circle, I have a lot of problems with that. But throughout the rest of the administration, there are a lot of good, hardworking people like Rod Rosenstein. And it's fair to say that dealing with the government can be difficult, and most companies are trying to make a good go of it, and it can be excruciating sometimes. So coming up with a easier way to do that, such as giving people a full declination, if they cooperate and self-disclose and all the other pilot program ideas, that seemed to be the next logical step. And here we are. So I think that is fine. Um, you know, we've already covered my questions about what happens if we have a different person uh, overseeing this. It should be noted that as of right now, we don't have an assistant attorney general for the criminal division. Uh, that person whose name I believe is Brian Baransky, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but he is still awaiting Senate confirmation like so many other Americans are. Um, but you know, eventually that person will come into the criminal division and then eventually that person will have a more hands-on responsibility for FCPA enforcement. So how might he interpret this policy? And you know, we'll, we'll live to see it. Actually, I wanted to go off subject just a little bit about what I think is new in this policy that should you know, just be a ding on compliance officers' radar screen is that um, there is a new emphasis on performing a root cause analysis of how these violations came to pass. And I've just recently this week, I wrote a short piece about that. Um, I do think it's interesting for two reasons. Number one, it's new. Um, the root cause analysis treatment was first floated in February 2017 when the Justice Department put out those guidelines on evaluating the effectiveness of compliance programs. And there were 11 parts. 
and 10 of them matched to the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. They've been around for years, which traced back to the sentencing guidelines, and 10 of the 11 sections of that guidance were not new. The 11th was a treatment of the root cause analysis, and that was in February. And now we see in Rod Rosenstein's um, talk earlier this month, and then in the actual uh, amendments to the U.S. Attorney's Manual, there is a call for a strong, robust root cause analysis. So clearly they're trying to push companies to, hey, figure out how this happened. And I would first stress that a root cause analysis isn't the same as an investigation. And compliance officers who are mostly lawyers, they can do investigations, figuring out who did what, what happened, what are the facts. A root cause analysis is more, what were the conditions that allowed these facts to transpire and led to an FCPA violation? Because they, the root cause could lead to multiple types of violations. You can have multiple fact patterns that result in the same kind of infraction. Um, and I think they're really trying to pressure companies, show us you've given us some thought to that dimension too, because we don't want to be here again in three years with the next infraction and the next fact pattern, because you didn't understand how the facts came to pass in the first place. So that's, I think, is one point that is worth remembering. And the other reason that I think it's interesting is because as much as I love compliance officers, this is not your forte. A root cause analysis is the internal auditor's forte. That is what they do. They study business processes to figure out what is not working according to the plan, what is not working as efficiently as possible, and how do we recommend changes to seal that up. Uh, so I think that we should be cognizant of the role that an audit function could play here. And it could play a very important one, either your internal audit function, or if you don't have one, you, have, you could certainly outsource this to plenty of audit firms that would be happy to do root cause analyses for some very nice hourly rate. They're always happy to have those conversations. But you know, you really need to think through how to get that root cause analysis done. What is my ability going to be to do that when the time comes? Because it may not be you that is going to do it. You're going to play a role in ensuring it gets done. Um, but I've just I've been struck. And I think it's a good thing that we should be thinking in these terms. Because it does get down to, are you really understanding what you're doing? Do you really have a culture that is in business processes and procedures and policies that are trying to erase this, this anti-bribery risk that you have? You're always going to have some fact patterns that emerge in a violation that's going to drive you nuts. But do you have the self-awareness and self-introspection to be able to understand as an organization? Here's why that happened. And... Here's how we can improve so that we won't have it happen again in three years. Maybe you're going to have a different fact pattern from a different cause in three more years or five years, and it's going to drive you nuts then too. But how can you clean up the root cause here? That, that's what struck me as the only significant new thing. So, Matt, do you see this as really something that is creating a partnership between the Department of Justice or the enforcers and business, or uh, was that uh, really a pipe dream by Rod Rosenstein? Hey, Hugh. It's not a full pipe dream. I mean, it's a good idea. And, you know, I think most companies would like to work with the government in a productive way. I think most people, even, you know, the... The vast majority of Republicans and conservatives and everybody else who, you know, at first glance, you'd think they, they hate all government. No, that's not true at all. 
I think the vast majority of Americans do want to have corporations working productively with the government to fulfill their responsibilities. Um, you know, I, on a very practical basis, is this going to be a partnership because the Justice Department doesn't have the manpower to do a lot of these investigations? Oh, yeah, that's true. There's nothing but budget cuts for the Justice Department, I think, for a long time yet. Um, and I question the priorities, the where corporate misconduct falls in the priority scale for the department overall. Clearly, Rod Rosenstein thinks about it. Clearly, his boss, Jeff Sessions, does not. Jeff Sessions wants to round up every MS-13 gang member he can find and crack down on marijuana sales. That's various other things like that. And, you know, where else will you know, other people in the administration, you know, where, where will they put this in the pecking order? Um, I don't know. It remains to be seen. And now we're on to some rants. This week we have Matt Kelly and myself. Next week, next week. We have Mike Volkoff, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jay Rosen. Uh, so my rant is actually, uh, I'm going to have a rant today, not about uh, corporate misconduct, but more about government policy and the net neutrality de debate that is happening right now. And the day that we are recording here on December 14, there is going to be, a, I believe, a final vote from the Federal Communications Commission to repeal net neutrality protections. Now, I'm going to put aside the merits of net neutrality or not. What is getting me really worked up is the corruption of the comment process to arrive at some policy decision. I am not entirely sure that uh, the FCC chairman would care that the comment process, you know, what the comments are. He seems to be a man on a fixed mission, and the voice of God himself could say, don't do this, and he would do it anyways. But we have now found that there have been millions and millions of public comments that are fake. At least hundreds of thousands have come from IP addresses in Russia, and millions and millions of others are, you know, they're entirely made up and they're being assigned to actual citizens of America who had no idea that their name was being used. Um, it is no big news that there are some bogus comments that worked in their way into the public comment process. I can remember that happened. There was a fake letter writing campaign about 10 years ago at the um, CFTC on some sort of derivatives regulation. Uh, but the idea that we might now corrupt the public comment process at scale and that other foreign agents might be doing this. I, I don't even think Russia really has any strong views about net neutrality or not. I think this might be a test case to foreign agents to see if we could delegitimize yet another part of public policy. Because if we do repeal net neutrality later on this afternoon, it's going to be made without any legitimate public input because so many of the public comments were just bogus. Um, and if we're going to see that start again and again and again, if we're going to see um, this start to infect SEC rulemaking or Justice Department policy, if they're going to solicit public input or anything else like that, then this country has a big problem. I think it is very irresponsible of the FCC chairman to plow ahead when we have this gigantic question mark over public input. Um, on a certain level, it's academic because the state attorney generals in at least 18 states have already said they're opposed to this. They're going to file suit against this decision by Friday afternoon. But nonetheless, we need to step back and get a grip that public comment does shape the policies that compliance officers deal with. And if we delegitimize 
the process to reach a policy decision. It's just going to be more of the regulatory incoherence that compliance officers already have to deal with, and we, they drive us up a wall. So we should not trivialize the importance of what's happened with that net neutrality, net neutrality debate. That is a big, big red flag. Well, uh, I'm going to actually give a shout out here, uh, uh, taking uh, editorial license uh, as the uh, editor of this uh, podcast. So I have really a two-part shout out. And the first shout out is to the process the Department of Justice went through to come up with a new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. The impetus would seem would have seen to have been seemed to have been the expiration in April of the one-year FCPA pilot program. At the conclusion of this one-year experiment, the DOJ announced it would assess the pilot program. But it not only assessed the pilot program, it made changes which I think make this new FCPA corporate enforcement policy more effective than the compliance program. In addition to the enforcement aspects of increasing the discount available to companies which met the requirements of the pilot program down to a 100% discount, the DOJ made the presumption made it a presumption companies would receive a full declination as the default response to meeting the prescripts of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Nowhere else under federal law is there such a presumption when there is a violation of federal criminal law. The second point is that uh, one that was raised by uh, former U.S. Uh, excuse me, Deputy U.S. Attorney General George. Terwelliger. He wrote in the FCPA blog, the new policy is grounded in the notion that companies and the government have a shared interest in securing the rule of law, which in this context includes global commercial markets freed from the influence and corrosive effect of corruption. When you can couple such a policy, uh, such, uh, such a policy as the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy with the rule of law, it is quite an achievement. It's this final concept which I find makes the new uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy uh, quite unique, and I want to tip my compliance hat to the Department of Justice for doing so. So this is Tom Fox. I hope everyone has enjoyed uh, this two-part episode where we've reviewed at length the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Matt. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance with four of the top commentators in compliance. Hope you've enjoyed part one of our two-part episode on the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, and I hope you will join us again next week where we have the comments of Jonathan Armstrong and Jay Rosen. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.